Like Josh said, we're going to be preaching of Zephaniah. Let me adjust this a little bit. We'll just roll with it. <laughs> That's fine. Okay, so Zephaniah, please turn to that book, please. Minor Prophet, Old Testament. It is between Habakkuk and Haggai. And I'm really thankful for the opportunity to be able to uh, really dive into this book because this is not a book that I would typically spend this much time in. It's one of those books in the Old Testament where you kind of read right through it, and it's only uh, three chapters, three small chapters in the Old Testament. And there's just so much in this book. And as I'm going through and um, preaching through this book this morning, I may speak a little quick. I may be reading verses a little quickly um, because there's a lot that I want to say and I can't keep you guys here all night. So uh, I'm going to try to get through this and, and teach you guys what Zephaniah uh, and what the Lord wants you to know through this um, book penned by Zephaniah. And a lot of it, it is directed towards Judah. It's directed towards uh, the nations there's a lot of uh, audiences here that Zephaniah is writing towards and uh, remind you that it is in the Old Testament and it is um, being written before the time of Jesus. And so I'm going to talk from their point of view in that context, but also um, recognize that when I'm speaking about God's people, uh, I'm going to be speaking about us as well. And in our context, we have Jesus. So I will get there as well. And we're going to look at the first verse of Zephaniah chapter 1 for the context here. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we see the intro of any of the Messiah is from a, a long line of people. This is the longest lineage that's given in, in the intro of any of the minor prophets. And um, really, it, he could be coming from um, Hezekiah, when they say Hezekiah here, like the King Hezekiah, but I'm not completely sure. Um, but the really significant thing that I want to see show you guys here is that he's in the time of Josiah, the King of Judah. And he has to be, or I think that he is one of the most, um, most common or most, not common, most popular, most um, influential or um, exciting kings of Judah. He became king at the age of eight, and he was one of the few kings who wanted to pursue the Lord and wanted to pursue righteousness. And later in his reign, something really interesting happened. And I remember reading through this myself, and it really popped up to me, and I was like, whoa, this is, this is really interesting, because I was reading through a lot of stuff, a lot of about the kings and all the things that were happening, and this was a really awesome story, um, because uh, King Josiah had the, his people cleaning out the temple of the Lord. And in the midst of the cleaning out and the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord, uh, there came a time whenever the people discovered a book. And that's really how it's pronounced, like how they say it in, in that time, in that um, story. In, it's in 2 Chronicles 34. They, it, a book is found. And the priests bring it to King Josiah, and they read it in his hearing. And King Josiah tears his clothes and orders the whole nation to go into a time of repentance and a big revival to um, get rid of all the idols and turn back from their sin and make sacrifices and worship to God. Because with the book that was found, 
was the book of the law of the Lord, the law of Moses. And it's crazy because that shows you how far removed they are at this time from knowing the laws of God. And so Zephaniah writes his book, most likely right or soon or sometime before that time, uh, whenever that book is discovered and there's that big revival, or big um, time of repentance from the nation of Judah. And so he's writing this book, and this book is divided into what I see to be three sections. And I will tell you what those three sections are, but I also have the three points. So if you're taking notes, you don't have to write this down. But the book's divided into three sections. The day of the Lord is coming for all things, including Judah. God's judgment against Judah's enemies, the nations, and Judah himself. And then the restoration of God's people. The points are the day of the Lord, God's wrath, and God's salvation. And that's how we're going to be looking at it. And it's kind of choppy here and there. Chapter 2, chapter 3, kind of in that motion, the points will go, but it's going to be kind of choppy here and there as well. So it's kind of flow that way, um, as you'll see. So point one, what is the day of the Lord? Now, most of us have been here on Sunday mornings for the last, as far as you can remember, uh, learning about the book of Revelation with Josh. And he's mentioned the day of the Lord plenty of times in the book of Revelation. So we kind of have an idea already of what the day of the Lord is. Um, but the day of the Lord in the book of Zephaniah is actually mentioned uh, more frequently than any other book. Uh, because in this three short chapters, over and over and over again, the day of the Lord is referenced. They're pointing us to the day of the Lord. Things like, um, the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord's sacrifice. The great day of the Lord is near. The day of the wrath of the Lord. The day of the anger of the Lord. And then on that day is referenced four times. And then multiple times, it, uh, the words over at that time or in that time, referencing that day. And so over and over and over again, this book is pointing us to the day of the Lord. And sometimes uh, the day of the Lord is referencing a, a time to come in the near future whenever um, the, God's people are going to face a disaster or going to face um, a, a death and they're going to be conquered, like whenever Judah is conquered or Israel is conquered. And that's what the day of the Lord is sometimes when, they're, when you're talking about the minor prophets in the Old Testament. But a lot of other times it's pointing us to an ultimate day, a particular day, a last day, as we know days. And it seems that in the book of Zephaniah, that is the day that we're talking about for the most part. And so what is the day of the Lord in the book of Zephaniah? Um, let's investigate that a little bit in the text here today. We know from chapter 1, um, verse 8 and verse 9, if you want to look at that, uh, it makes, and then that, or the Lord says that I will punish, I will punish and then in chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So it's basically like God saying, um, I will judge you by your righteousness, or according to your righteousness, or according to your unrighteousness. And so it's a time of judgment. And we see... Later on in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking to the Athenians, 
And he says this uh, passage, or this uh, two verses that we may be really familiar with. He says to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And what Paul is talking about here, and the demand that we know is Jesus. And so he's saying that God is going to judge everyone by righteousness. And we see that here in Zephaniah. Also, the day uh, when God will bring together, that day God will bring together a remnant of his people to experience his salvation. So I will get more into that later, but the day um, there is a remnant of people who are going to experience God's salvation in the midst of God's wrath and judgment. And you see that in chapter 2, verse 3, that we, um, we had just read, I believe, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Um, perhaps one day, on that day, you'll be hidden from the anger of the Lord. And in 3.12, you want to go there? Chapter 3, verse 12 says, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So it is a day um, where not all people will experience the punishment of God's judgment. It also, though, and this is where things can get tough. I know that mentioned that I did listen to Josh Green preach from this uh, sermon when he was preaching through the Minor Prophets, and he mentioned that um, the book of Zephaniah uh, had, as far as he known, has, as far as he knew, had never been preached through, or he hadn't been preached through since he's been here. So this would make the second time it's been preached through. And the reason why a lot of us don't hear a lot about this book or it's not preached through often is because it's also very difficult and there's also a lot of hard things to hear about when it comes to God's judgment. Because it's also a day um, that involves an unfathomable amount of destruction and death, a, a massive amount of destruction and death. And we see that right here at the beginning in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked, and I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And in 1.18, he says, Neither silver nor gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of um, death and destruction. It's also, according to chapter 1, verse 15, a dark and dreadful day. There's a lot of um, descriptors here in verse 15 of chapter 1. It is a day of wrath in that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. But so why? Why is it such a hard day? Why is it so dark in many ways? Why is there so much destruction? And it can be found in verse 17, and it's because of sin. It is similar to the judgment days in the day. It's a very easy comparison there with the days of Noah because we know what happened in the days of Noah um, that Noah and his family, the only ones found righteous and the only ones that were given salvation, a remnant was brought 
um, from all the people that were on the earth at that time. And God brought forth his wrath and destroyed the people with the flood. And that was because of the sin. That was because the perversion of uh, what God had created and, and who God had created the people to be. Um, because I don't know how many people were on the earth whenever um, Noah's day, but now we have billions of people. That is billions of walking statues of the image of God. That people who were created to glorify God in the way that they live and all the things that they do, and yet the exact opposite has happened, where, every, where so many people are taking the glory that they're supposed to give to God and they're making it and fashioning it for themselves. There's so much sin and hatred and all these other things that are, are just terrible. And that's what brings this kind of, um, this kind of just retribute, like this, this judgment, because God is just. There has to be, sin has to be dealt with. It has to be. That's the way it is with God because he is perfectly just. He can't let sin just slide by. And that's where we get to the second part is God's wrath. According to this passage, what are the people doing uh, to bring the wrath of God? And I want to specifically focus on the people of Judah because he does um, talk about things that the nations are doing. Um, but for the people of Judah... Those are the people who are supposed to be following God. Those are the people who, um, are, who are supposed to be committed to him. The temples there in Jerusalem, their ancestors have been brought through so many things they've been provided for in so many ways, and yet God's wrath is coming down on them. Why? Because chapter 1, 4 through 6, let's see, is the first reason. Because they're turning away from God to worship idols. Let's see. 1, 4 through 6. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. In the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. So what we have here is a people who have erected temples for another god, Baal, little g god, not real, but they are worshiping him instead of the real one true god. We have people who are on top of their roofs, um, laying down, uh, prostrate before the stars to worship the stars. And we have people who are swearing by Milcom, another god, at the same time as that they're worshiping the one true God, as if he is one and the same, as if he's equal on the same playing field as these other um, lesser gods that don't even exist. And so that's terrible. So that's one thing that Judah is caused, uh, accused of doing. And before I move on, I want to I wanna say, like bring this home a little bit. And I know that you guys have heard this many times uh, being in this church but they had those physical gods that they worshiped, those idols and the stars and all these different things that they worship. But we as people um, have the same heart that they had in that we love to worship. We worship things. We make idols. And so we, the same hearts that ascribe glory and devotion to other things um, are so typical and so common among us as well, but it's just not as obvious. And then, 
chapter 1, verse 12, the one that I think is more convicting for me, and I think for Christianity today, is the complacency. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do it ill. So we have people who, uh, men who are saying that the Lord basically will do nothing, that they're complacent. And in my Bible, there's a little footnote for right beside the word complacent, which says, uh, are thickening on the dregs of their wine. So the men, the people who are basically thick on their own wine, getting fat on their own wine. And you can kind of get that mental picture there that they're just, they're just living life and, and just enjoying life and doing whatever they want with no regard to who God is, with no regard to uh, a mission, no regard to a purpose. They're just doing whatever their heart desires. And God hates that. That's something that we need to know about God is the... So often, uh, with them and with us and with myself, um, I face this complacency when I know that there is a mission, that God has given us all a mission. And I was on the wrong page. But God has given us all a mission. He has called us all to do something. And so the people of uh, Judah had a mission, and we have a mission. God has given us plenty of commands in Scripture. God has called us to many great and awesome things. But a lot of times we live like just really easy and I don't know if lackadaisical is the word or, or whatever it may be. But that just really can't be an option for believers. And that, that's a very uncomfortable thing to hear. It's an uncomfortable thing to think about whenever you really get into the truths of Scripture like we're called to. Because when we read scripture like uh, Noah and the ark and passages like this, when you see God's judgment over so many people, we seem to, we usually just consider those to be numbers. Just millions or billions of people, it's just a number. But the people who are under God's wrath are people that you and I know, it's our people. It's people that are, that are close to many of us. It's, uh, it's, the faces and personalities and the histories of the people that you know. It's the Muslim neighbor, the person next door who believes something wildly different than you do. It is the lady down the road who just lost her husband and she's widowed and she's depressed and she's fighting against God and everybody. It is the granddaughter who has uh, turned herself into an object for attention. It is your mom or dad who um, who thinks that they're going to get into heaven whenever they die and because they were really good and they did some really good things in life. There's a lot of people, co-workers, whoever it may be, that we're really close to who are in this number. These, this, isn't just, this isn't just the number here. These are actual people that we, we know and love. And when we say we love somebody, that typically pushes us to action. But like we learned and like we talked about with some of the guys um, this week in our small groups for discipleship now on evangelism and reaching people, 
Um, if we really love somebody, then wouldn't we want them to know who Jesus is? Wouldn't we want them to be saved? Wouldn't we want them to be a part of the remnant that experiences God's salvation in the day of judgment? It makes sense to say, yeah, I would want that for them. Yeah, I love them. But for myself, and I feel like for most of us in the room, we meet that truth, and yet it doesn't match up with our actions. And so that is just uh, hopes um, I want to bring to you guys um, that I know that God dislikes. Uh, hopefully it doesn't wear you out too much. Um, but God does have a plan to reach more people and bring more people into his salvation. But it's going to be through the people that he uses who are not um, sitting in, in complacency. Some other uh, sins that God uh, pushes against uh, when, or brings to mind with uh, Judah. 3-2, rebelliousness. They are rebellious. 3-3, three, three, the leaders do not uphold justice or integrity. Even the leaders are bad. 3-4, the prophets and priests do not honor the Lord. Even the prophets and even the priests are not honoring the Lord and they are living in sin. In 3-7, I want to read this verse. 3-7 says, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwellings would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. So they're persistent. They just the judgments of God and the and the warnings of God continue to come, but the people are persistent in their sin. This isn't just a a one-time thing where uh, they got one warning, but they didn't listen. So now they're now it's judgment, fire, and brimstone. It's they kept they kept getting people telling them the truths. There's many ways for them to understand, and yet they consistently lived in sin. And so that's when we get to verse eight of chapter three where the Lord says, therefore, wait for me. Wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. Do you want to be persistent in sin and all these different things? Wait for me, I'm coming. And that's, that's scary. That's scary where the Lord himself, he is all powerful. He has all authority. And he's saying, you guys continually sin against me. Wait for me, I'm coming. But this is what the beautiful thing about the book of Zephaniah is that it's two, it's uh, three, three and a half, yeah, two and a half chapters of just judgment after judgment and just hardship and just darkness. But then you have a half a chapter where it's light and hope and all these awesome things. So now comes the sunshine. The book takes a huge turn, and we get to God's salvation, the third point. What does God's salvation look like on the day of the Lord? Well, we're going to have new hearts and new speech, or the people, the remnant of God is going to have a new heart and new speech. He says he's going to bring that there. And remember that this is the still the day of the Lord. He's saying on the day of the Lord, on the day of the Lord, all this judgment, on the day of the Lord, my people are going to have a pure speech. And look at this in verse 9. This is where it starts, chapter 3. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. 
Does that sound like a verse that you've heard before? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10, 13. He's going to change their speech that they made so that they can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And I say it's a new, a new speech and we're giving a new heart because as we know from the book of Matthew and Jesus speaking about um, what to take in that's clean and unclean, that he says... Um, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And so if we have, un, we have clean speech, that's got to be coming from a clean heart. What else do we have on God's salvation in the last day? We have perfection, chapter 3, 11 through 13. On that day, you should not be put to shame because of the deeds, but you shall no rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So we have perfection here. There is no more sin. There is no more uh, pride. There is no more lying and deceit. All these things are no more whenever the day of the Lord comes and all things are new. There's no more sin. And right here at the end of chapter 13, uh, he says, For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Does that remind you of any other verses in Scripture? It reminds you of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. So that also means that in that day, there will be peace. There will be a sigh of relief, perfection, and peace. In 3.14, we have maximum joy. 3.14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. There will be singing and rejoicing in the truest and fullest way possible with all your heart. I'm not a very uh, exuberant person, not very uh, emotional person, so I can't really imagine what it would be to sing with all your heart. Just there's so much joy whenever that day comes for the remnant of God's people that they will be singing with all of their heart, everything that they can possibly give. That's the kind of situation that the remnant is in. That's the kind of situation that we'll be in. So there's going to be maximum joy. And also, God, lastly, there is God's presence. On the day of the Lord, God will be with his people. Look at chapter 3, verse 15, and then verse 17. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. So the Lord is finally and ultimately with his people. He's always desired to be with his people through the garden, through the tabernacle, the temple, residing in us through the spirit. And then ultimately here, one day, God is finally going to be with his people uninterrupted. So God's presence will be with his people. And I want to 
focus in and end on uh, chapter 3, verse 17, because I think this particularly striking. It's really good. Because we usually think about how the day of the Lord will be for us, how the day of the Lord will be for God's people, but what we don't usually think about is how the day of the Lord will be for God himself. We don't usually think about how the day of the Lord will be for God, what he thinks, how he feels about it. And so let's look at chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You see that? That God will sing over us. He will exult over us. And that it shows God's heart, doesn't it? Can you imagine God singing over you? I, I don't think you can. I can't. Because we're talking about the same God who spoke everything into existence. The God who spoke everything into existence singing words over you. That's a big deal. So God, God is love. And so he truly loves his people and it shows whenever he sings over his people. And you, you may have uh, deal with shame and all these different things, but, and, and think that maybe we don't actually deserve God's love or God's love may be fake because God is love. He has to love. But if God is love and God has perfect love, it has to be a real love. It has to be a real love. He has to truly, really love us ultimately, perfectly. And when God loves us that way, whenever God's people feel loved in that way, we glorify him even more. We glorify him the most whenever we feel the most loved. And as we all know, the end of all things is God's glory. And so it works together in this perfect circle, if you will. Um, it just builds on itself. So what Zephaniah is trying to say to his people here, uh, or to God's people, uh, Judah, is to repent and seek the Lord. That chapter 2 begins with a call to gather together. To gather, he's telling everybody to gather together, which is a reference to a solemn assembly where you are to repent, where you're all to make sacrifice and worship the Lord, repent from your sins, turn to him, seek him, gather together and do that. that what, that's what Zephaniah is calling the people to. And the same message applies to us today in that we should repent and seek the Lord. But we are much further in the future. We are much further in God's unfolding plan. 2,000 years ago, an ark was built and, uh, and a refuge or protection from the wrath of in the time was born. And we know who that is. That was Jesus. Like in the times of Noah, whenever his family seek refuge in the ark, whenever God's wrath came down on everyone else, there was a remnant. And that ark symbolizes Jesus Christ. And 
If we are to be protected and to be that remnant, to be the people who experience God's salvation, all these awesome blessings that we see in Zephaniah chapter three, we have to be found in Jesus. He is our salvation. He is our way to salvation. Um, But things are similar now as they were then. We just know where our salvation is found. Zephaniah called the people to turn to the Lord and trust in him for their salvation. We are also to turn to the Lord and trust in him for for our salvation. And that is through the name of Jesus Christ because we know that our sins were put on him because like I've said, our sins have to be dealt with. Our sins are either gonna be dealt with in one of two places. They're either gonna be dealt with on the cross with Jesus or they're gonna be dealt with in the final judgment in in hell. And that's blunt and that's hard to hear But that's the truth, and that should push us to move and push us to rejoice. Um, But like I've mentioned earlier, if, um, if we don't, or just don't be complacent in your faith is what I'm trying to say. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, don't be complacent in your faith. Um, But if you're saved, if you've experienced that goodness, if you've experienced God's love in that way through Jesus Christ, then you want to bring people with you into God's salvation. Imagine you're on on the ark. You want to pull people with you because God has said, go, go and do this. You have clear invitation to do that. You don't have just an invitation. You have a command. And and so if we're to love others, that's that's what we do. And this book, it, it's hard. It brings us to true really good. It's also really glorious. There's also a lot of hope and a lot of awesome things in this, but it brings us to truth from beginning to end, the truth that we need to hear. And I think that we should read this book uh, a little more often. I think that maybe after this, I was only able to pinpoint a select amount of verses, but after this, you should go check it out. Read the three chapters of Zephaniah. It doesn't take long at all. Um, and really... Soak in some of this truth for yourself, and I hope that um, it can push you to, um, to just love the Lord more and love your neighbor better as well. So let me pray for us now. Father God in heaven, the God who is just, God who is merciful, God who is so loving at the same time, Lord, you have put together an awesome plan that all your attributes can come together in perfect harmony for your glory and for our sake and satisfaction. Uh, I pray that more believers in here will be sanctified tonight, that we will um, go forth in humility, knowing that we are sinful, knowing that we are no better than anyone else, but it's only because of the work that you have done that has granted us your salvation. And so I pray and hope Uh, that you will give us your spirit, that you will abide in us and help us in your grace to overflow with compassion for one another. Lord, help us to glorify you. Lord, help us to have uh, a great week. Help us to be mindful. Help us to think about eternity because that is where we're headed. Please help them not to be too burdened, but to come to you for rest. In Jesus' name I pray these things, amen.